thank all of our uh, testifiers. Uh, really uh, extraordinary testimony. All of you deeply professional, deeply knowledgeable, obviously not in agreement. Um, some intense frustration expressed. I respect that. Um, uh, these issues, as I said before, are foundational to uh, people's identity, uh, to communities, to tribal identity. Uh, and so I just wanted to acknowledge the, professional with, the professionalism with which uh, you all delivered your testimony. I'll start with uh, Mr. Newland. Um, I understand the department is currently gathering data related to Friedman eligibility for certain federal benefits. Um, can you just talk a little bit more about what's going on in that process and uh, how it's coming along? Thanks, Mr. Chairman. So as I uh, mentioned in my testimony, uh, we had uh, conducted consultation, formal government-to-government -government consultation with five tribes uh, back in February. We received, in addition to sitting down and having a conversation on some of these same issues, we received comments. Uh, and the question was whether to uh, admit uh, non-tribal member Freedmen descendants as students at Haskell and, and Sippy. Uh, one of the challenges uh, with that is that the, the BI is not currently uh, set up in a way where we have the capacity to make determinations about who would and would not be eligible. We typically rely upon tribal, uh, tribal governments for membership and citizenship questions. And so uh, we haven't yet you know, decided on a, a, a definitively on a course of action coming out of that consultation, but those are some of the issues that we were considering. Got it. So uh, I, I'm sort of assuming you can't answer this question, but um, based on the data that you're gathering so far, do we have a ballpark number of how many Freedmen descendants, descendants have equities across the five tribes? I don't have that number, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, There's been talk, uh, Ms. Van's testimony talked about a CRS report. There's been talk among staffers uh, about a GAO report. And just cards on the table, as I'm thinking about the path forward, uh, that strikes me as an important first step, just to sort of set a baseline of how each of the five tribes are in a different situation, um, both in terms of their treaty obligations, but also their, their current view of the issue and where they may or may not be in pending litigation. Um, but also some baseline data about how many people are we talking about, mm -hmm. right? What percentage of the current roles would this constitute? What kind of resource requirements would that uh, implicate? And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are about a GAO report to try to get a level set here about um, the history, the legal aspects, the mechanics of conducting a role. The, I know something about this from the Native Hawaiian community, the, you know, the blood quantum questions, the lineal descendancy, they're not so easy to settle. And so even before you get to the potential for public policy in this space, you need to know what the facts are. And so I'm wondering what you think about that. Mr. Chairman, we, uh, we would be happy to, to work with the committee to um, in better understand kind of how that uh, study would be set up. Uh, but you hit the nail on the head that uh, you know, simple descendancy does not, uh, in and of itself, doesn't necessarily mean that somebody would be an eligible freedman descendant because each tribe has uh, slightly different citizenship requirements. That, um, and so 
the short answer to your question is uh, uh, we'd be happy to continue those conversations to, to look at how we would better define the universe here. My final question before I turn it over to Vice Chair Murkowski, and I'll do a second round to try to ask some additional questions. Uh, Chief Hoskin, uh, you testified that the nation has approved and processed uh, just under 12,000 uh, citizenship requests. Do you have an idea of, was it an initial rush, and, and now you just have a few coming in in the sort of regular order, or are there a lot of requests still pending for processing? How is this working? There, there was an initial rush because of the obvious uh, news of the court decision and how we embraced it. Um, but the number has grown steadily. So uh, when I testified before a House committee uh, earlier this year, we were somewhere in the neighborhood of the 8,000 range. And so that gives you an idea. Now we're closing in on 12,000. Now, we are the largest tribe by population in the United States, coming on to 440,000 citizens in that neighborhood. I think as we go out and engage in our outreach, Mr. Chairman, we are encouraging more people to sign up. And it's a rigorous process, and it should be, uh, but we're doing outreach, and I think that's why you see our numbers continue to grow. I don't know what the ceiling is, and I don't know right now whether we can get the committee this information, what our pending applications are, but we process thousands of applications for citizenship every month for Cherokee, potential Cherokee citizens of all sorts of descent, uh, including Cherokee by blood and freedmen. So I think that number is just going to continue to grow. Um, and just before I turn it over to, to Vice Chair Murkowski, just for the, for the other representatives of the tribes, um, whether over the table or in subsequent correspondence, I am going to try to get some fidelity on how many people we're talking about for each of your tribes and and what percentage of your current membership that may comprise. I understand that is sometimes sensitive information, given that you are sovereigns, uh, and so I want to be respectful of that. But I also think for decision-making purposes, we need to sort of understand not, not just the legal and moral and historical implications, but how many people are we talking about, and if it is a resource question, what it would cost to address. Um, so, so just to let you know those questions are coming, and I'm sensitive to the... Uh, to the idea that maybe you don't want to give me incredible precision um, with a microphone on. Um, Vice Chair Murkowski. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, I'd like to begin with a question to you, Assistant Secretary Newland. Um, when Secretary Holland approved the Cherokee Nation's new constitution guaranteeing false citizenship, uh, she did state very clearly Tribal self-governance is the best path forward to resolving internal tribal conflicts. We encourage other tribes to take similar steps. But as we have heard very clearly today, the, uh, the, the treaties that the five tribes are under are very different, and therefore the obligations to the freedmen um, and their descendants uh, are at, at, at question here, of course. So the question to you is, if, if the tribe's treaty does not require it to extend membership to freedmen, what, what federal obligations does the federal government have to the freedmen and to their descendants? And I guess a follow-on to that would be if there are any administrative authorities that the Department of Interior possesses that uh, could be utilized to address the concerns. You, you indicated that consultation has been underway and uh, uh, discussions about um, uh, 
BIE and BIA, uh, and, and the department has not determined yet how to move forward. But can you speak, again, to the federal obligation and, and also to potential administrative authorities? Thank you, Madam Vice Chair. I want to make sure I, I, I'm understanding your question correctly. Are, are you asking if, if a freedman descendant does not have a legal uh, right to tribal citizenship, at that point, what would the United States obligation Correct. be? It, what would it, the obligation be then to the freedmen and to their descendants? Yeah. Uh, thank you, Madam Vice Chair. It's, it, it, if there's no legal right to tribal citizenship, it's, it's not clear then that the United States would have a trust uh, duty uh, to any individual as though they were, um, as though they were Indian or as though they were a tribal citizen. And so what about uh, any administrative authorities within the department to, uh, to address some of the concerns that we have heard articulated today? Um, thank you, uh, Vice Chair. You know, this has been a, this has been a difficult uh, question for us to, to answer. Um, I know some folks uh, here in the room have views that these these questions are clear. The answers are clear on their face, but in terms of how we would uh, administer direct services to freedmen descendants, again, it's it, it's very difficult for us uh, to put that into practice through the BIA because we're we're simply not set up or not constituted right now to make determinations about who would be a, a lawful or legitimate freedman descendant um, entitled to those services and, and who would not be. And so um, I guess the answer to your, your question is it's, it's just not clear today what administrative capabilities we would have. So let me ask yet probably another hard question, and that is uh, a recognition that as, as sovereign parties to treaties, Tribes clearly have an important role in interpreting the meaning of the treaties, but the United States is also the other sovereign party to the 1866 treaties that are signed by the five tribes. So <clears throat> the question would be, what role does the United States have to interpret and enforce the terms of these treaties as, as the other signatory? Um, probably not, not easy again <laughs> for you to respond to. Thank you, uh, Vice Chair. You know, they're all hard questions, um, which is why we're, I, I think we're here in this, in this setting today. Um, it, it, both sovereigns that are, uh, are party to a treaty have a responsibility to fulfill the terms of the treaty and also have a right to uh, uh, de help determine the treaty uh, in its meaning. Um, it, you know, I think the, the Cherokee Nation's journey uh, here is a, is a, a great example of uh, the mix of uh, uh, diplomacy between the United States and the Cherokee Nation, but also the Cherokee Nation exercising its inherent sovereign powers uh, through its own political processes and its own judicial process uh, to resolve these questions um, without conflict or having a, an outcome imposed upon them uh, from from outside the nation, and so I think the United States has 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 that ability as well as a sovereign party to the treaty, but uh, you know that can be 
I think the best way to resolve those is within the tribe and through the nation to nation relationship. Assistant Secretary, hopefully this is very quick and very easy, but uh, the Seminole Nation claims in their testimony that there's still some federal services that require the, the uh, CDIB cards, the um, certificate degrees of Indian blood cards. Uh, these are including services that are provided by both BIE, BIA and Indian Health Services. Can you just share uh, with me whether or not a CDIB card is a federal requirement for eligibility to access BIA programs and services? Uh, Madam Vice Chair, uh, typically we, we refer to somebody's, uh, a person's uh, status as a tribal citizen or tribal member for the delivery of those services. And, and in, in most cases, and I believe with respect to all five of the tribes represented today, they, uh, they perform the CDIB functions under contract with the BIA um, under their tribal government authority. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm well over my time. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Senator Lujan. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, thank you to you, uh, Chairman Schatz, and to Vice Chair Murkowski for this important hearing to discuss these respective treaties um, of 1866. I want to thank each of our esteemed witnesses uh, for taking time to be with us today and for all of our constituents who are here um, as well to participate in person and for everyone that is participating virtually as well with this important conversation. My first question is for Chief Hoskin. How has recognizing Cherokee freedmen as Cherokee citizens affected the Cherokee Nation? Well, I think it's affected us in a positive way. I mean, Mr. Chairman, there is, or, or, or Senator, there's something about living up to what we see at Cherokee Nation insofar as our 1866 treaty is, is an obligation. And we think treaties are solemn promises. So that in and of itself, I think, uh, does something for the Cherokee people. Uh, I also think that exploring a part of our history that we have, frankly, suppressed collectively, individually, uh, and are now doing the opposite, embracing it is good. Frankly, it's good for the United States to uh, take some scrutiny of its own history. I can say that as a chief of the Cherokee Nation, because the United States has suppressed Cherokee history collectively, individually. We have to look in the mirror, and we have to recognize that we've done the same. Embracing freedmen history, going into communities where many freedmen descendants live, for me as chief, I think it's made me a better chief. It is it is exposed me to some of the needs in that community that we need to work to meet. And so I just think it's been completely positive. I am not going to suggest that there hasn't been some difficulties in terms of our internal uh, you know, debates and discussions about whether this is what the treaty meant. I mean, Cherokees are certainly uh, uh, noted for disagreeing from time to time. We have a great and vibrant democracy in the Cherokee Nation, and people have raised their voices. I think that's also been healthy. But ultimately, we respect the rule of law. We respect our ancestors, and our ancestors agreed 156 years ago that freedmen and their descendants should be uh, considered people that have all the rights of native Cherokees. Being able to say that is important. Lastly, Senator, when I come into this chamber or in any forum in which I am pressing the government of the United States to live up to its obligation, uh, 
I do so as a chief of a nation that's living up to the obligations in that same document. It would be difficult for me, Senator, to come to this committee and press for treaty rights if I could not say to myself, we are living up to all of our obligations. That makes Cherokee Nation. Insofar as our treaty is concerned, I think a nation in a stronger position that we, than we would be had we not done that. Thank you, Chief Hoskin. Assistant Secretary Newland, you mentioned in your testimony that Interior is continuing to review consultation feedback before it makes a decision on whether freedmen are entitled to enroll at Haskell Indian Nations University in Kansas and the Southwestern Indian Polytechnical, uh, Polytechnic Institute in New Mexico. Assistant Secretary Newland, although enrollment at BIA post-secondary schools is still under review, what are some direct federal services that freedmen with tribal membership are entitled to? Thank you, Senator Lujan, for the question. So if, if, if freedmen descendants are enrolled as tribal citizens, then they are, they are brought within the scope of our relationship uh, between the United States and, and tribal nations and, and would then be eligible for the services that the federal government provides to that tribe and its members. Thank you for that. Uh, Ms. Van, um, yes or no, are Cherokee tribal members with Freeman status able to receive every direct federal service and right that the federal government provides to tribal members without Freeman status? No. My follow-up is what federal services and benefits are they not eligible to receive despite having full tribal citizenship? When the Stigler Act amendments were made in 2008, uh, the Act of 1947, um, the language did not allow uh, freedmen tribal members slash freedmen citizens to uh, uh, inherit uh, restricted land uh, from their relatives or spouses of, of their tribes, uh, and the land would retain its uh, restrictions. All, uh, one other thing is that uh, freedmen tribal members and freedmen citizens are being treated uh, differently um, when it on the reservations when it comes to uh, criminal uh, uh, cases. Uh, and, I'm, and again, I'm talking about the McGirt decision. So those, those are the two areas. I appreciate that response, Ms. Van. And Mr. Chairman, my time has expired. I do have other questions I will be submitting into the record uh, and to follow up with those that I've asked. Thank you for the time today. Thank you, Senator Lujan. Senator Langford. Mr. Chairman, thank you. Thank you to all of you that are here. It's nice to see so many Oklahomans uh, here and get a chance to hang out with neighbors. And uh, very much appreciate your testimony and for everyone uh, coming today, especially want to be able to thank Principal Chief Hoskins, Chief Johnson, uh, for coming here and to be able to represent in leadership. All of you have done a great job uh, representing your tribe, and I especially want to recognize the two chiefs that are here as well. Uh, also for Marilyn Van, uh, we met, I'm trying to think, 11 years ago uh, when you chased me down in a town hall meeting at a public library and cornered me in the room to talk about Friedman issues. And we're tenacious about that and has never stopped in the process. So you, you, you represent the freedmen well. Uh, you have stayed very knowledgeable on these issues and have stayed tenacious uh, in the process on that. So it's great over a now decade-long friendship with us that we have stayed in contact since then. You didn't scare me off when you cornered me in the room to be able to talk through issues, and you still don't scare me off. Uh, and so uh, glad to be able to call you a friend as well. 
Uh, let, me, let me just ask a, a general question on this uh, and to just bring this out because the chairman's trying to be able to figure out how do we get to resolution so this is not another century from now and this same kind of hearing is still occurring? Uh, because many of you referenced these are resolved issues within our tribe. It's been resolved in law. It's been resolved through different treaties. It's been resolved through different arrangements. But it's clearly unresolved in some of these issues. So the, the, the key becomes how do we actually get to resolution on this? So can you describe to me the relationship uh, and the number of freedmen that are connected to the tribe uh, that we know of, as you mentioned before, uh, Chief Hoskins, about 12,000 at this point for the Cherokee Nation. The number and then also what is the current relationship there, whether it is voting rights, whether it is other benefits, or whether it's nothing at all in that. Would be helpful just to be able to get some context for the record on that. Chief Hoskins, obviously yours is the easiest of this one, but. Yes, thank you, thank you, Senator. It is good to be here and, and to spend some time with you. Uh, at Cherokee Nation, citizenship is equal. Uh, I suspect my good friend Marilyn Van has the same thing with her that I have with me, which is a Cherokee citizenship card, which apart from our picture and name is indistinguishable. That's where it starts in terms of the symbolic representation of citizenship. But beyond that, there are equal rights. There are no distinctions between uh, Cherokee citizens of freedmen descent or Cherokees by blood descent. I would note for the committee that Cherokee Nation is even more diverse than that. There are Cherokee citizens of Shawnee descent, Cherokee, Cherokee citizens of Delaware descent, those all stem, Senator, from that same time period, the period of post-Civil War. Uh, there is no distinction. I do want to note, if I could take the opportunity, uh, my friend Marilyn Van noted those two areas in which Cherokee citizens of freedmen descent do not have equal access. Those are two distinctly federal issues for which the Cherokee Nation would support any discussion, any dialogue on how to repair those. Those are not within the control of the Cherokee Nation. So to the extent, Senator, that it's within our control, equal rights is the order of the day at the Cherokee Nation. Okay. Chief Johnson, it's good to see you. Good to see you. So do you have a, an accounting of what that number might look like of, uh, for freedmen uh, that are attached to the Seminole Nation or in a relationship there and what, what that relationship is like? The freedmen are uh, numbered within the Seminole Nation uh, citizenship uh, about 2,500. Okay. And I want to I want to say some things on some things that's just been what I call innuendos and, and things. Uh, if anyone here has studied the history of the southeastern tribes, what you're going to find is that the Seminoles are totally separate in the areas of the relationships with people of African uh, persons of African descent. My land's longest wars in American Indian history was fought. Uh, between the United States, the Seminoles, and what they were called the Maroons. Uh, some of them were escaped slaves. Some of them were free people. That was freedom fighters that were fighting for the same cause, and that was to remain free. The Seminoles have always had the freedmen as their citizens since 1866. We had a Florida lands claims not too long ago, back in the 1990s. Uh, that was as a, as a Seminole nation was recognized by Congress in 1823. The freedman was not that the so-called freemen at that time uh, was not actually freemen. They were uh, persons of African descent, maroons, free slave, or, or escaped slaves from the South. So uh, they, they were not eligible for those judgment funds as deemed by Congress. Now, what we know as Seminoles is that since 1866, the freemen have been citizens. They, get, they got two seats on the, on the tribal council, which is four seats on the tribal council. They can vote on measures that's passed by the tribal council of the Seminole Nation. Uh, if they come in for enrollment, 
They, they come in and they are enrolled as citizens. You know, customs among American Indians are very important. Now, I hear all kinds of words being said this day, but my lands, our, our treaty says that the terms of the 1866 treaty made it clear that said legislation shall not in any manner interfere with or annul the present tribal organization, the rights, the laws, the privilege, and the customs. It has always been the custom of the Seminole because the treaty says so. It says right here in the treaty that, uh, that its members are citizens. We had that choice to say members are citizens. So I see interchangeably that term being used, citizen, members, citizenship, membership, all that type of thing. And that might work for federal government, but in the customs of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, freedmen and the descendants of the freedmen, there's no such thing as a freedman today. I think you know that. They're descendants of freedmen. And, I, and, and they uh, have always been by custom of the Seminoles. The Seminole Indians have been members of what? of the native bands, the 12 different native bands within the nation, and, the, and once after 1866 and the development of the, of the uh, freedmen bands, they have been members of those particular bands as well. But they have always been seen as citizens. And the customs of the Seminoles that became the specific tribes in Florida that became known as Seminoles, we have always been known as the members of those specific bands and that's in the Seminole nation. So that's how the Seminole Nation sees it. That's our oral history. That's our tradition. And I believe the treaty actually actually supports those two terms being used. And that's how the Seminoles use them in this present day as well. Thank you, Chief Johnson. Michael Burge. Yeah, thank you, Senator. With regard to a path forward, well, before that, I don't have a number to give you. Okay. Maybe we can get that, but I don't have a number to give you. But with regard to a path forward, just, yeah, the, it, it's not so much a path forward as it is just a description of the current relationship as far as services, what, what may be different on that. There, the, the, the Choctaw Nation does not recognize the freedmen. Okay. And uh, that is because of the Constitution. But just one, one brief word on that Constitution that arose in federal court. The Department of Justice and the Department of Interior were in that case. There was specific discussion about how certain people would be treated, the adopted, the intermarried white, and the freedmen. Right. And a determination was made that it wanted to be Choctaw by blood. Delton Cox from Poto, Oklahoma, was on that commission. And I've talked to him, and he said this specific issue was discussed, and the federal government never raised an objection. They never raised the treaty issue. They never raised the freedmen issue and approve this constitution. We think that Choctaw Nation as a sovereign entity should be able to determine its memberships as set forth by the Supreme Court. Okay, thank you Mr. Burge, thank you. John Duff, I'm yes, gonna call sir. you by your first name because we already know each other, so yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> so uh, give us the approximate number that's in relationship if, you know, if it's known and then any other benefits or details or connection. I don't think specific numbers are known because the data is uh, notoriously challenging to to confirm the validity right. of. And along those lines, Creek Nation has been engaged in an active effort to compile data internally and uh, collect historic, cultural, legal information to help provide in background for citizens of Creek Nation to have an informed dialogue that's driven by facts, 
not by political rhetoric. And that informed dialogue, incidentally, um, may go beyond any specific treaty provision. I want to point this out because the treaty issue is, uh, you know, it's been framed in very conclusory terms about what it says and what it doesn't say. But as I've said before, the treaty itself is working its way through our court system. But beyond that, this information gather, gathering that uh, our chief, Principal Chief Hill, uh, has, uh, has promoted as part of a national conversation will help inform conversations beyond simple treaty interpretation. Any nation worth its salt has to, including the United States, has to regularly determine whether or not existing laws are consistent with the will of the people. And you need information, you need data to have that discussion. But I would, I would just say in a previous position, I was at an agency that uh, cited regularly uh, a statutory provision that is often cited in many watershed legislation in terms of Indian affairs. And that, and that legislation talks about the fundamental policy goal of the federal government is to support strong tribal governments. So whether it's through the judicial process of Muscogee Creek Nation or the, the public voting process of Muscogee Creek Nation, the federal government has a responsibility to support the sovereignty of the nation as it engages in this dialogue. It's important that it does so because, as I said before, colonialist history does not bode well in terms of efforts by the United States to impose its values on these sovereign nations. And we need to learn from history. So one way to turn sympathetic folks in this issue against a federal action is to impose solutions rather than have a true healing process within the nation that's fostered by information. And that's what we're engaged in right now right. at Muscogee Creek Nation. People may have concerns about time frames. People may have concerns about when things are going to happen, but any progress of any nation comes in its own time. Yes, we need to push for a conversation, but it can't be imposed by the United States. So uh, thank you, Senator. Your question about data is very well taken. The data, there are historic problems with the data, but we're internally looking at it. I, I, I caution against conclusory uh, positions regarding what one treaty position means or provision means without having the courts take a look. I get that. Re respect that. That's the area that the chairman's been working on for a while and trying to be able to think through how to be able to gather more data. The work that the Muscogee Creek Nation's already done will be very helpful in that process to be able to be informative uh, for a process like that. So that that's a helpful piece to be able to have. Yes. Uh, so I appreciate that very much. And I what, what I think you hear from this committee and certainly from the chairman is how do we work together in this process? I, I, don't, I don't hear a federal... Uh, federal action to be able to try to step on any kind of tribe in that it's uh, getting a chance to be able to partner together for things. Mr. Crethman. Thank you. Um, it's just to define terms. Uh, Chickasaw Nation doesn't track right. freedmen or non-freedmen. There's Chickasaw citizens and non-citizens. Um, as I said, this, this was litigated over a century ago, so there aren't separate tracks of citizenship. There are just citizens. Right. Uh, many Chickasaw citizens are also folks who are descended from people who are held in bondage. Um, so they could be classified as freed persons, but they're also on the Chickasaw by blood roll, so they count as citizens. I have no number for you okay. as far as folks who are not on the Dawes Commission Chickasaw by blood roll, 
but are exclusively on uh, freedom roll. I have no number for you on that. Okay. All right. That, that's all very good. Mr. Chairman, I'm going to ask one follow-up question on it. So I apologize for going along. I'm getting, I'm taking my Oklahoma time uh, with Oklahoma folks here uh, in the process, but that's helpful. Thanks for just putting the, the context of that on the record uh, because that's helpful to be able to get the context on all, uh, all those issues. Mr. Newland, I do want to ask a slightly separate question on this just as a follow-up on it. Uh, there were two major Supreme Court decisions that have a very direct and immediate impact on Oklahoma. You know them very well as McGurd and the Castro Huerta uh, decisions on that. I, I need to ask you a question. If the Department of Interior or if you or anyone you know of is currently working on a legislative response for McGirt or for Castro Huerta, uh, is there any ongoing work either from technical assistance or writing because this has direct impact on every person that's here? and on my state and the four million Oklahomans uh, that I represent. So is there any action that's currently going on that you or, or anyone on your team working on to develop a legislative response to Castro Huerta or to McGirt? Thank you, Senator. Uh, the executive branch has been asked to provide technical assistance on uh, legislative uh, language in response to the Supreme Court's recent decision. Okay, was that only on Castro Huerta or was it McGirt as well? Yes, Senator Castro Huerta. Would you be willing to be able to share that my office as the, the Senator for Oklahoma, um, obviously that has the direct impact on my state as well and all these folks that are here. Pardon, can you? Would, would you be willing to be able to share that information with me because obviously as the Senator for Oklahoma that has direct impact on my state? I, I don't see a reason why, uh, no reason comes to mind why we wouldn't be able to share that, Senator. Be great, thank you. Mr. Chairman, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Senator Langford, just on the question of TA, we, we, uh, I don't know who the TA is being provided to, actually, but I just want to make sure that they have the, if it's a member or a member office or a committee office, I want to make sure that they have the ability to work confidentially with counsel in the executive branch. And uh, But I, I can assure you that the conversations we've had privately about um, understanding that Oklahoma equities uh, are, are well taken, but I just want to protect Secretary Newland's ability to work confidentially with whatever member or member office may be asking for TA. Sure. Uh, In I, fact, I, it, it could be my staff. I don't know yet. I, I, I respect that. My, my, my biggest <laughs> challenge is I, I don't ever want something being worked on or developed that's a piece of legislation that has direct and immediate impact on Oklahoma tribes and on the state of Oklahoma and Oklahoma not actually be involved in that. Nothing about me without me. I got it. Um, uh, thank you very much. Um, I, I just have one uh, uh, final question for uh, Ms. Van, and I've lost it. Um, oh, got it. Um, knowing that Congress's authority related to tribal membership is li limited by federal Indian law and the language of the treaties at issue today, what do you think can be done to further the cause of reconciliation. I think that although it got a little hot today, and I have no doubt that some people will leave this hearing, maybe even most people will leave this hearing feeling unsatisfied, uh, not vindicated. Um, I consider this a success because we aired it out um, and um, people were heard and um, I think it is important to move forward, but I think it is important to move forward carefully. Uh, measure twice, cut once. Uh, uh, we want to make sure that we move forward legislatively together. We want to make sure that sovereignty is respected, but we also want to understand that 
African-American enslaved people um, and Native Americans were mistreated. And we are all in this situation because of the actions of the federal government of the United States. The official policy of the federal government of the United States ends up pitting African-Americans and Native Americans against each other in this terribly unfortunate historic circumstance. And so I don't have an easy solution. I think a GAO report is a reasonable start. I think dialogue is an important start. But I'm open to whatever suggestions you may have about moving forward as quickly as we can, but understanding that if we try to move too quickly, it will actually backfire and we will lose another decade uh, of potential progress. So I'm interested in your thoughts, Ms. Van. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I am, uh, is a member of a, a tribe. Um, I am, um, certainly I believe in tribal sovereignty, but the United States, of course, uh, does have a responsibility to the freedmen people uh, as per the treaty, not just to the uh, tribal chiefs and chairmen. Now, um, uh, decisions have been made uh, regarding the status of the freedmen by some na tribal nations, and this comes uh, in part after you know Jim Crow laws, which put persons of African ancestry on the bottom uh, of the deck here in Oklahoma. The uh, so far as Solutions moving forward, um, where there are some um, uh, case, uh, the freedmen have tried to uh, uh, do various things to try to uh, get equity under the treaty. As I said, uh, for instance, uh, there are uh, some Creek freedmen descendants who uh, have been trying to use the federal courts and, and also the tribal courts. Um, as, as well as, of course, uh, coming up here to D.C. Um, and um, the, uh, we, we would like for the true history of the tribes and the freedmen to be there. So as I said, you know, that's one reason we're calling for studies because there have been some tribal leaders in the past who have said things like the freedmen were forced on the tribes or, or snuck in from Arkansas, although the uh, there are federal records that say otherwise. So let's get the truth out there for what it is. So far as the, um, um, you know, I, I, I like this idea of continued dialogue. Um, but um, as I said, the freedmen people, a lot of people are in need. Not all of that is the fault of the tribes. As said, some of that is the state of Oklahoma. And there were some tribal leaders in the past that were in elected position I think there was uh, around 1907. There were some that were around, uh, that were coming from some of the tribes that sat in Congress, that sat in the Senate, and they were opposed to uh, persons of African ancestry. I also want to mention that the freedmen people were not citizens of the United States until the other members of the tribe became citizens. Um, you know, our uh, citizenship was coming through the treaties. Now, um, so that being said, I made a few suggestions about, you know, possibly how the United States uh, can bring some relief uh, to the freedmen people uh, so far as some services. I know all of that's going to cost money, but I also want to mention the fact that back before, uh, back in those earlier days when the tribal governments 
were, were, not, uh, were more limited until the Principal Chiefs Act was passed in 1970. The, um, the, the, the Bureau, they did um, uh, number people, including the Freedmen people, sometimes for per capita payments. Uh, that happened, I know, in the Cherokee Nation. I know in the uh, uh, Creek Nation there were some per capita payments in the past. And so this sort of thing can be done, but again, it's going to cost some money. I get that. Um, so, uh, you know, in my 22-page report, you know, I have some other suggestions there. Again, we couldn't get to in the five minutes. So um, that's what I'm thinking. It's, it's going to take some time, some effort by the federal government. Um, I would like to, um, uh, you know, and I understand that there were constitutions that were approved by the, um, by the federal government, but, uh, you know, if Freedmen people weren't allowed to vote on them, you know, well, and again, they've been signed. So there we are. Thank you very much. I'll thank uh, all of the testifiers as, as well as our first panelist, uh, uh, Chair Waters uh, from the U.S. House of Representatives. The hearing record will be open for one month to allow ample time for views to be submitted uh, for the committee's consideration. I want to thank all of the witnesses for their time and their testimony today. This hearing is adjourned. <laughs>